We are ending Jeremiah today. Uh, this has been amazing for me. I, as a pastor, am not afraid to admit that I hesitate when I have to go towards Old Testament. I force myself to work through books of the Bible so I don't just go to places where I feel comfortable. Jeremiah was an uncomfortable place for me. But I am finding that I have an appreciation for this book that I never had before I went through as a preacher. And I have to say that Jeremiah, as I had taken these last you know, few months to really look at his life and his ministry, is now quickly becoming one of my favorite characters, if you can call them that, or people from the Old Testament. Since today is our last day, there's no way for us to go through all that we've talked about in terms of Jeremiah's story. One, but I have to tell you this. One of the things we do in our missional communities is once a year we force ourselves to go through something called the story of God. Where over a period of 12 weeks we tell the entire biblical arc, as we call it, the redemptive arc. From Genesis to Revelation, but we tell it in story form. And it's hard for some of us. We're so used to in-depth Bible studies. And this is, not a, this is not meant to be a Bible study. It's meant to be an exercise in muscles we don't usually use. Which is to say, if someone came to you and said, tell me the story of the Bible, you would be like, oh, what? Um, can we, uh, let's study 1 Corinthians together. You know, I mean, we, we're comfortable with that, right? Let's dig into this, this passage. But unfortunately, we've lost some of the skills that the people of God have had for generations, which is to be able to say and speak God's story and to speak our life into that story. So I'm just going to give us a big picture view of what has been going on in Jeremiah to get us back into the feel of this story. Because as a text, as I mentioned, it is not easy to approach because Jeremiah is not written chronologically. So you have to be very smart as you come to Jeremiah and notice you almost have to have a list of the kings next to you to notice what period of time Jeremiah is talking about in each chapter. <clears throat> but here's how it's unfolded. And by the way, someone's got to do a movie on this guy. Like a good movie. It is worthy of that. It's an amazing story. It's, a, it's about, you know, you talk about Game of Thrones. I mean, this is a game of empires and thrones and a lowly, ragged prophet in the midst of all of it, continuing to speak God's word as kings rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. It's very interesting. So what happened was there's uh, a good king, of course, Josiah, who does these amazing reforms. And Jeremiah comes on the stage as a prophet and he says, you know, during Josiah's great reforms to bring people back to God, he says, everything looks really good, but your hearts are far from God. And people despise him for that. Jeremiah, aren't you the one advocating these reforms? And now you're telling us we're not, our hearts aren't where God is, wants us to be? Then there's a series of other kings, which involves some assassinations and other things. And this king, Jehoiakim, comes on the scene. And while Jehoiakim's there, he goes back in all of these terrible ways. We talked about how it got to the lowest of lows. Child sacrifices, idols set up in the temple of God, in the holy places. And Jeremiah is preaching judgment. God's had enough. As he said, Jeremiah is saying... Jerusalem, Judah is going to fall. Israel, the ten southern tribes have already fallen. 
They've already been captured and destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. And now Babylon is looming on the horizon. King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Zedekiah is, I mean, not King Zedekiah, King Jehoiakim is there. And the first time, the first time the armies of Nebuchadnezzar surround Jerusalem and put a siege on King Zedekiah, I mean, King Jehoiakim, he surrenders. And when he surrenders, they come in and they take away thousands of the best and the brightest. And they carry them off. And they set up this wishy-washy king, Zedekiah. Who they, Zedekiah will just go along with whatever anyone wants. So Nebuchadnezzar goes, okay, Zedekiah, I'm putting you in charge. You're a vast estate. You, gotta, you have to respond to what I tell you to do. I'm leaving some soldiers here. The problem is Zedekiah listened to anybody. So when people were talking to Zedekiah about rebellion, he said, yes, let's rebel. Jeremiah is saying, this is not God's will. You should submit. You should surrender. The other, there's a bunch of other prophets going, don't listen to him. This is what God says. We're going to defeat this army. Right? Call on Egypt. Get our allies to come. So they do. They call on Egypt. They get an alliance going. King Nebuchadnezzar, with the most powerful army, one of the most powerful armies in the ancient world, comes to surround little old Jerusalem. And Egypt has second thoughts. It says goodbye. And now they're surrounded. They're under siege. And in the middle of that, Jeremiah is saying, God is saying to surrender. Your lives will be saved. This is God's will. Instead of listening to him, they throw him in a cistern to die during the middle of the siege. He's saved by a friend who pulls him up and he's put under house arrest in the courtyard. And he keeps preaching God's message that there will be judgment. It's going to be 70 years in exile. But that will not be the end of it, right? Then eventually, the writing is on the wall. Everybody sees, you know, there's starvation. They're running out of food and water. Their massive cisterns filled with water that they keep for these kinds of sieges are going, are depleting. No one can leave the city walls without being taken by the, by the um, Chaldean army, by the Babylonian army. And Jeremiah says this isn't the end. But now people are believing it is the end. They think this, this is the end of it all. It's all going to happen. Jerusalem is captured. King Zedekiah tries to escape with a band of his people outside the, a secret gate in the king's court. And they run away with his best officials and bodyguards, and he gets caught. King Nebuchadnezzar blinds him, puts him under arrest, puts his family to death. They destroy Jerusalem. This time, they're not leaving anything to chance. The walls are leveled. The temple, the first temple, is demolished. They had already taken all the best gold and other elements out of the temple. Now they take everything else, even the bronze basin, this massive metal basin for ceremonial cleansing in the worship of God. They destroy it. They take it away in pieces. Everything is gone. Jerusalem is in rubble. And this time, instead of just taking the best and the brightest, they take everybody left alive, except for the very poorest of the poor. And they say, guess what? You, you poorest of the poor, we're giving you these estates. You get the vineyards. You get the orchards. It's all yours. Because, and this is smart, think about it. King Nebuchadnezzar says, if we do this, they'll be loyal. There won't be any more rebellion, right? Well, they have to put someone else in charge. And so they pick this man named Gedaliah. And they leave him, this time as governor of of Jerusalem and Judah for what's left of it. 
And he's just got a few people around him and then the poorest of the poor. Now, all these forces who had been fighting for Israel, who were dispersed throughout the land. I mean, remember, this is a big land. They're dispersed all over. They began crawling back out of their caves and their holes where they ran away from the, the army when there was a defeat. And they come back to Gedaliah. And Gedaliah says, essentially, if we serve the king of Babylon, then we'll be okay. And, <coughs> excuse me. But what happens, once again, is that um, there's this man named Ishmael. He's connected to the royal family. And he decides this isn't the way to go. So he aligns himself with longtime enemies of Israel and Judah, the Ammonites. And there are people near Gedaliah who say, guess what? He's trying to kill you. Ishmael wants to kill you. He's going, no, not Ishmael. He's a good guy, right? Well, Ishmael comes in. He kills Gedaliah. Okay, and this, you have to understand what's happening here. Everybody knows. He kills Gedaliah and any of the Babylonian soldiers that were with him. Everybody knows Nebuchadnezzar has already come in and destroyed everything. This is his third attempt putting Gedaliah in charge. What's going to happen now? Right? There is nothing left. Nothing. Ishmael captures everybody who's left in Jerusalem. And he starts a long march to their enemy territory, the Ammonites. They're going to be slaves again. This is the plan. There's this man, a hero, you could say, called Johanan. And he musters up a few loyal forces. And they go and they fight Ishmael. But Ishmael escapes. He runs away. And the people are freed. So imagine this. Jeremiah is among this ragtag group. They were all that was left of Jerusalem. There's just been a fight, just another revolt against what King Nebuchadnezzar set up. They're out on their way to the Ammonites somewhere. And Johanan saves them, and he says, Jeremiah, what's God's word? Would you pray to God for us? What does God want us to do? Because he says, there's only a few of us left, as you can see. And that's the text that we come to for our last text today. We're going to be reading from Jeremiah 42, 1-17, and 43, 1-2. Then all the commanders of the forces... And Johanan, son of Kerah, and Azariah, son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest, approached the prophet Jeremiah and said, Be good enough to listen to our plea, and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, for there are only a few of us left out of many, as your eyes can see. Let the Lord your God show us where we should go and what we should do. The prophet Jeremiah said to them, Very well, I'm going to pray to the Lord your God as you request, and whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. They in their turn said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to everything that the Lord your God sends us through you. Whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God, to whom we are sending you in order that we may, it may go well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. And at the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he summoned Johanan, son of Kareah, and all the commanders of the forces who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and said to them, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea before him. If you will only remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I am sorry for the disaster that I have brought upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon as you have been. Do not be afraid of him, says the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to rescue you from his hand. I will grant you mercy, and he will have mercy on you and restore you to your native soil. But if you continue to say, we will not stay in this land, thus disobeying the voice of the Lord your God and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt, where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread, and there we will stay. Then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you are determined to enter Egypt and go settle there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine that you dread shall follow close after you into Egypt, and there you shall die. All the people who have determined to go to Egypt to settle there shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I am bringing upon them. So they asked Jeremiah for God's word. We're at the end of the end, Jeremiah. We'll do whatever God says. Tell us what he says. God says, don't fear the king of Babylon. Stay in this land. Stay in Judah. Don't go to Egypt. Right? How did they respond? 43, 1-2. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah, son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, son of Pereah, and all the other excellent men, said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, Do not go to Egypt to settle there. But Baruch, son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Chaldeans in order that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we give thanks to you for the faithfulness of Jeremiah and his scribes who preserve this word for us, and for your Holy Spirit who continues to work through us as we study. Pray that you be with us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. There is an interesting theme that continues to play out in the story of Jeremiah. I'm sure you've noticed. It's a theme of the choice between faith and control. The choice between trusting and listening to God when it sounds impossible and taking things in your own hands and doing what's practical. And this has been the story of Jeremiah from beginning to end. I love baseball. I uh, got hooked on the Mariners back in 95 when they were making their first run to the, in the playoffs. I hear about the curse of the Cubs, and I just hope that, uh, you know, as they, they made the World Series, right? I keep hoping that's going to be the Mariners one day. But you know why I like baseball, I found? I, I've asked myself this question, why I like baseball so much. 
And I've decided that one of the reasons I like baseball so much is that it's so clear. There are no gray areas in baseball. Have you noticed that? Even the way they lay out the field is so precise and perfect and geometric. You know, for instance, that phrase you may have heard that if a base runner is running to first base and a ball is thrown, the tie goes to the runner. Actually, there's no such thing. In the rules of baseball, there is never a tie at first base. You either beat the ball or you don't. Baseball is so precise and clear. It's black and white. A baseball game never ends in a tie. Even in Little League, even with little kids, you never end in a tie. A game might be postponed. You might have to finish it later, but you can't end in a tie. It just goes extra innings until someone makes a mistake or someone hits a home run or something happens and it breaks loose. The baseball field is perfectly laid out. The players, if they don't follow the rules, they get ejected. And when a ball is put into play, it's always one of three things. It's either a hit, an out, or an error. So right away, if you make a mistake on the baseball field, everybody knows, record the error on that first baseman, right? Don't get me wrong, I love other sports too. You guys know I like football. I probably talk about football too much. Uh, But you know what the interesting thing about football is? If you really want to appreciate football, you have to have a DVR or something like it, and you have to watch the play 22 times to see what every player does on the field. And if no one's ever been in a film room to experience this, uh, I don't know if anyone else has. I mean, I have spent hours of my life in film rooms, and we watch every play at least that many times. Rewind forward, rewind forward, rewind forward. Okay, let's watch the tight end. Let's watch the tackle. Let's watch the guard. What did you do? I mean, it's exhausting. But that's the only way you can truly appreciate football. I love football and I like watching it, but you know, when a play happens, there's 22 players doing their own thing. I mean, they're coordinated, of course, but they're all doing something different. And I, you have to pick one to watch. Most people like to watch the quarterback. I usually like to watch the defensive end or one of the tackles or something on the line because that's where I play and I can kind of see how it's working, but you can't see it all. But in baseball, one guy throws the ball. One guy swings at the ball. Hopefully he hits it if it's a team you're rooting for, right? Another guy catches the ball. Another guy throws the ball. Then another guy catches the ball. I mean, you can watch the game unfold and you don't have to rewind and see what everybody else is doing. The great thing about coaching baseball, and I've been coaching Little League for a few years now, is when you coach baseball, you don't need a whole massive team of coaches because you can pretty much see what's going on as a one coach. I mean, you can see what's happening on the field. The problem is, after you leave a baseball game, after I finish watching a baseball game, it brings me back into a life that is anything but clear. It's a life of faith. It's a life where there's constant questions about what's right and what's wrong. There's questions about who, what the rules should be. Who makes the rules? How do we enforce them? How do we interpret them? There's no clear winners and losers. There's no clear ending. So what does all of this have to do with our text? Egypt, for the people of Judah, is the alternative to faith. It's interesting how often Egypt comes up in the story of God's people as the alternative to faith. 
Remember when uh, they first left Egypt and they're out in the desert and things started to go bad? People said, even though they were slaves, they're like, we should just go back to Egypt. It was good there. We had food, right? We had water. We're not going to die in Egypt. Egypt is constantly the alternative to faith. When Johanan asks Jeremiah to pray to God for him and give him an answer, he says, well, do whatever it is, good or bad. But what he was really saying was, well, do whatever it is as long as it's going to Egypt. And God says, stay here. He just wants a religious seal of approval on what he's already decided to do. And I I sympathize with them. What Jeremiah and God is asking them to do requires so much faith. They've just ticked off the largest army in the world again. Jerusalem is in ruins. The walls are gone. The temple is gone. The nation is decimated. The farms are destroyed and burned. The food is gone. The land ransacked. The people gone. There's a cistern. If you read Jeremiah, there's a large, massive cistern, the one they used to fill with water for the sieges, in Jerusalem that is currently filled to the brim with dead bodies from the latest bloodbath. And God is saying, stay in this place and I'll protect you. Egypt, on the other hand, is an awesome looking alternative. Egypt, our ally, even though they backed out on us, they'll let us come back in. Egypt is so perfect. It's got the, Egypt's had the same borders forever. The Nile River makes a perfectly nice line through Egypt. They know where things begin and end. They have a strong army. They have a rigid hierarchy. You're either part of the royal class or you're not. There's no murkiness there. They make their buildings in clean mathematical lines. Right? Everything so precise in Egypt. And they have a rigid religious system. It doesn't have any of this black and white stuff. You don't have to try to find the right prophet. They just got it set up everywhere. And they have a hierarchy in all of their religions. You just go to the right person and ask what you need. They'll give you the answer. Egypt, the alternative to faith. The great irony, of course, in the story of the people of God happens in this text that we read here. Because if we go back and read the story, God takes them out of Egypt. He delivers them to the promised land. He eventually allows them to have a king, even though God is their king. They become a nation. They win battles, right? They have their ups and downs. But now, at the end of it all, when God says, stay in this place, I will protect you, they're going back to Egypt. Jeremiah is taken by force with the remnants to Egypt. And the end of Jeremiah's story is Jeremiah in Egypt preaching to people what they don't want to hear. You know, Jeremiah's story could have turned out way differently. There's this pivotal moment when, during um, that King Zedekiah's reign, when, they, when the army surrounds him the second time, and then they capture Jerusalem, and they're taking away everybody but the poorest of the poor. Jeremiah is among those being marched away. He gets about five miles out of Jerusalem, and this amazing thing happens. A word comes directly from King Nebuchadnezzar. He's heard of Jeremiah. He apparently believes 
After all that Jeremiah has said, even though God's people don't believe, he believes he speaks for some kind of God. And so he sends word direct to these forces who are taking the people out of Jerusalem. And he says, free Jeremiah and give Jeremiah a choice. He actually says, the king Nebuchadnezzar says to Jeremiah, the land is before you. Choose what you want to do. You can come to Babylon. And he basically says, I will protect you. I will give you everything you want to live a nice, comfortable life in Babylon. Or, if you choose, go back to the governor, Gedaliah, who I've appointed in Judah, and you can stay in your land. It's up to you, Jeremiah. Jeremiah could have continued on to Babylon, and his story would have been much different. He would have had comfort. He would have had peace. He wouldn't have seen any more war. He could have been with his people in exile. God's people. But he chose something different. Jeremiah made the choice of faith. Jeremiah returns to destroy Jerusalem. He believes that finally the people are at a place where God can do some work. The walls down. The temple gone. Obviously prophecies have come true. Now we can start from the ground up. And God can rebuild course it doesn't work that way because the people choose Egypt. Believe it or not what many people, many Christians believe is a choice for faith is actually a choice for control. I want to read to you something Eugene Peterson said about this, about this story we were just talking about. He says, far too many people choose to live in Egypt instead of by faith. They go to religion the way I go to a baseball game. Yes, I stole Eugene Peterson's image. They they go to religion the way I go to a baseball game. To escape the muddle, to have everything clear, to find a good seat from which they can see the whole scene at a glance, evaluate everyone's performance easily, and see people get what they deserve. Moral box scores are carefully penciled in. Statistics are obsessively kept. Oh, Presbyterians, we're good at our statistics. Many religious meetings are designed to meet just such desires. The world is reduced to what can be organized and regulated. Every person is clearly labeled as being on your side or on the other side. There's never any doubt about what's good and what's bad. The only problem with such Egyptian religion is that the clarity lasts only as long as the meeting. It's not a deepening of reality, but a vacation from it. During that protected time and space, heroic performances are applauded and villains booed. There's clear-cut opposition to hate. But back at work, at play, at home, the labels don't stick. Life outside the meeting is then resented as being hopelessly contaminated. It's understandable that people who embrace this kind of religious life go to as many meetings as possible in order to have the experience of clear and controlled order as frequently as possible. So let me just say, this is not at you any more than it is at me. Many pastors fall into this category. They shelter themselves around church people and church meetings because everything is so nice and neat and clear in those places. 
And you don't have to deal with the murkiness and the messiness and the moral morass of life. It's comfortable. I certainly feel like there's times in my life when I could have put myself into this category. Living life on mission for God, and one of the reasons we have that banner mission, we're gonna, our next series we're going to be talking about these three things, these three pillars, gospel, community, mission, that are so essential for us, is because we know that what Jesus did is he redefined people and he said, actually he didn't redefine them, he, yeah, he did, he defined them again as a sent people, just like they were when they were first sent to the promised land. And they said, Abraham... Through your family, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. That was the promise. I'm sending you to do this. Living life on mission is so much messier than living life in church meetings. My life, since we started Thailand's, has changed a lot. I know that for most of you, you probably can't tell that. But for me, I'm serving on all these boards. I mean, I'm taking us out to pick up trash on the streets. We're trying to help those people who are experiencing life that feels hopeless, who are not church people. We're making friends with people who hurt us and are mean to us, and it isn't easy. I will tell you, I will confess to you, there has been many times over the last four years when I've had a thought of, I wish, part of me wishes, I could just go back to running a bunch of church meetings with church people. The black and white becomes so much easier. But what's very... I, I could never do it. I mean, that's just a fleeting thought. And here's why. Because Jesus has taken that burden off of my shoulders. Jesus has taken the burden that I need to control it. That I can't control it. He's taken that off my shoulders. He carries the load. He's freed me from the need to prove myself. He's freed me from trying to live my life as being validated in other people's eyes. The only question we need to ask ourselves when we're looking for validation is what does God think of my life? What does God think of the things I'm doing? Life of faith is messy. I mean, there is no doubt about that. You don't have to go any further than the scriptures to see that a life of faith is messy. But the life of faith is the only life that is truly free. God, it's so easy to say these things, but for all of us, as we move back into a life where People don't share our values where there is evil or there is a disagreement about what's right and wrong. It's hard for us, God, to live faithfully there. God, I pray that you would help us to resist the temptation to take control, to attempt to take control. God, help us to turn to you Help us to be your people. Help us to be faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.